lots of lousy businesses. And there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job over the years has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio. From the AM640 studios in Toronto. With Hi-Fi portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Well, good morning, Toronto. Looks like we're going to actually have ourselves a nice weekend of weather. Long overdue. Wolfgang Klein here, your host, Hi-Fi Radio, Jack Hartle. I think it's three weeks in a row he's back. Good for him. Due for a holiday, Wolf. <laughs> yeah. Labor Day's coming up, Jack. You'll get it in a week, my friend. Uh, got ourselves a very important show lined up. We're going to be talking, of course, about the iPhone with Mike Walkley, uh, one of our analysts, Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Uh, if you are retired and seeking income, preferred shares have probably been on your menu. Doug Gree from Lysanders runs a pref fund and he's going to be speaking to us about the required expertise in managing a uh, active portfolio of preferred shares and we're going to close the show off with my favorite strategist from new york tony dwyer he's going to defer his flight to the appalachians to uh, join us on the radio to talk to us about getting set up for the month of september and uh bull bear which side do you want to sit and I think it's going to be the bullish side. So without further ado, let's talk to Mike Walkley here uh, from, is it Minneapolis you're in, Mike? That's where I'm in. Yep. You're in Minneapolis. So uh, you're, you're a great analyst, Mike. You really are. And that's why we've had you on the show a number of times. Uh, you had the fortitude and the gumption and guts to put a short call on BlackBerry way back when. Uh, and you were oh so right. And you remain very bullish on Apple right again. Uh, so the iPhone 8 is coming up, and so is back to school. Uh, look, my, my kids keep consuming way too much data for me, Mike. Uh, they, they love the products. They just can't get enough of it. Um, and, of course, you know, you got the Instagram and that Snapchat thing and all the, kids, all the things that the kids want to play with. But uh, let's get the meat, to the meat of the story here uh, with Apple uh, coming to September. Uh, where are we at? What do we got to look forward to? Yeah, sure. So Apple's 10-year anniversary from the iPhone, you know, hard to believe 10 years ago they weren't even in the smartphone business, and now they capture 90% of the industry profits on a, on a seasonally strong quarter. But, yeah, they're launching the phone. Likely September 12th will be the event. Um, should be available kind of the last two weeks of September to help that September quarter and then really ramp in terms of volume and new products into the December quarter. You know, what, what we think is going to help demand for the – stock is the last time you had a big upgrade cycle to iPhones was when the iPhone 6 larger screen size came out. That was three years ago now. And we estimate there's upwards of 300 million consumers with an iPhone 6 or older model, you know, ready to upgrade into this new um, iPhone. You know, they're going to be more expensive. They'll probably have the 7S and the, and the 7S Plus that will look like the current iPhones. There's some new um, technology features. And then the 10-year anniversary iPhone, some are calling the iPhone 8. That will be the expensive one with an OLED screen, um, better better form factor than what you've seen before from Apple, some, some new technology issues, um, and we think it's going to be very well um, seller for the, that upgrade cycle from that 300 million installed base ready to buy a new iPhone. We think there's over 600 million consumers out there today with an iPhone. Um, how different do you think the product will be on a percentage basis? Will it be 10% different? Will it be 30% different? The... Uh, 7S and 7S Plus will be kind of that 10 to 25% different. It will look similar on a 
form factor, the, the, you know, the look of the phone, but they'll have new features in there, so things like facial recognition, some faster processors, those type of things that will entice people to upgrade. But then the, the new OLED screen, you know, it's going to have a much higher screen resolution. Um, it's going to have this new um, area where the screen-to-body ratio is much higher, meaning that even though this phone's just a little bit bigger, probably in between the 7 and the 7 Plus in terms of size, but it'll be all screen. So you have more screen. So when you're consuming data and using streaming video, et cetera, you're going to have a much bigger screen size to look at um, without the phone being too much bigger. So that's, that's one of the bigger upgrade selling points along with the other features they're going to put into it, facial recognition. So now it sees your face to open the phone versus having to use your thumb, things like that. Hmm. Mike, it's Jack here. Just with all these new uh, bells and whistles that you have coming to the market with these iPhones that uh, are launching expected expected in uh, September, um, what are your expectations for the the sales and sales growth? I guess for these new phones. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be two facet sales growth. One is going to be on the unit. So going back to that huge install base of 600 million people now carrying iPhones with very high consumer satisfa- satisfaction and upgrade rates. So as that base is ready for a new phone, that's going to help drive sales. So we think they're going to hit record sales of 84 million units in the de- December quarter. Wow. The expectation is the new highest in iPhone is also going to start, you know, the lowest in memory one is going to start at $999. So this is to a company now with ASPs of the blended mix closer to $600. So you start to sell more of these more expensive phones, you get higher gross margin dollars. So, you know, we think it's set up for a record year of earnings for Apple over the next four quarters and in fiscal 18. And that's why we're maintaining our buy in the stock uh, and think it's one that investors should hold on to into this product cycle, especially for the ASP and margin upside in the coming quarters. So, so with sales like that, they're taking market share away from Samsung. Is that correct in the high-end uh, iPhone market or uh, smartphone market? Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of this twofold that's been a phenomenon with Apple. They've been growing share, and that's where the installed base of the 600 million consumers comes into place. They're growing share of the high-end market. And then on top of that, just because they're creating you know, new products, they're actually growing the whole industry profit. So it's, they're taking market share and, and kind of taking, you could call it wallet share. So you know, we, we do some survey work, and we're seeing now like kids would rather get a new iPhone than you know, a new pair, pair of clothes or whatever for back to school. So it's actually when iPhone has these big cycles, you know, kids are spending more today on technology or want more technology than they want clothes or other items that used to be um, a big back-to-school spend item. So even, you know, taking the place of computers somewhat. So, yeah, so we're just seeing kind of an overall land grab wallet share for Apple. And, you know, into this holiday gift-giving season, Apple should do quite well with all their new products. You know, you got these AirPods, which are the $150 Bluetooth headsets. They're selling well. They're they're having trouble even meeting demand for those. You have their HomePod, so they're going to have your first Apple speaker, kind of like the Amazon. I mean, much higher speaker quality. That's what we've heard is it's a much better surround sound type system, you know, higher quality, but, you know, similar in functionality to this uh, popular Amazon Echo type product. And, and, and we all thought that millennials were just about the experience. Uh, look, experience some commercials, folks, not too many of them. Uh, stay tuned. I want to talk more with Mike Walkley about uh, Apple's iPhone 8 launch coming up just in the middle of September, right after this. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. 
For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Yes, I feel like Dr. Evil talking about the Alan Parson Project. iRobot. Yes, the bridge there is talking about the iPhone. I couldn't come up with any Apple music. Uh, Nick Boynton's in the uh, studio getting pressed up for his next show. He came up with Iron Man. Uh, what did you come up with, Jay? You had a, a line there for us. What was it, Jay? It was Eye of the Tiger. Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, Jay Charles in the house. We got, we got Jack's hockey team in the studio, of course, uh, getting set for our next interview. We're going to be talking a little hockey on next week's show. But uh, anyways, Mike Walkley is in the house. Managing Director, Senior Equity Analyst, Canaccord Genuity. Specializes in Internet of Things and covers Apple. Mike, thank you very much for joining us this morning on Hi-Fi Radio. I always appreciate your time. Um, so there's 600 million iPhone users currently, and of course, Apple is hoping to tap into about uh, 85 million of those users to to buy the new iPhone 8 and the likes, correct? Yeah, that's how much we think we'll just sell in Q4. We think over the cycle, we're thinking 250 million is what we're modeling over fiscal 2018. So the next four quarters, starting with the December quarter, we think they'll sell 250 million iPhone units. It's, it's unbelievable. It's a big number. So, so, so gross revenue. Then, uh, your estimates for 2018 for Apple gross revenue? Um, let me open that up for you. It's, it's a, it is a big number. I'll I'll get that uh, number two in a second. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, Don't yeah. have to my head here. Yeah, no, no, no problem. No problem. And 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 likewise with profitability, you're hoping the company earns how much a share uh, next year? Yeah. So so for Apple, we're expecting total sales because. Um, for next year, $270 billion. $270 billion in revenue for Apple next year. And $11.64 in, in earnings. To give you kind of the product breakdown of that, um, iPhones will be about $170 billion of that $270 billion in revenue. So, $170 billion going to the phone, a product that wasn't around 10 years ago. Exactly. So that's, that's amazing how they just built this huge business off that uh, entry into the market. Yeah, and, and now in terms of con- in terms of content, Michael, are they getting into the content business as well? They like, are. like beyond, of course, what we know about iTunes, uh, but actually, like competing with Disney and Net- we heard this a couple weeks ago. Disney's coming up against Netflix, so so where's Apple in that whole content creation cycle? They're early, and you know, typical Apple terminology. They're dipping their toe into it. They've hired a few people, some directors, and I think they're going to try to create their own content. They're just starting off though, so. To be seen if they can do it internally and build something, or if they end up buying content. To, you know, particularly if you get this repatriation of cash, there's speculation maybe Apple should buy, you know, buy more content to drive revenue. But Apple does focus on you know of that 270 billion in revenue. They have you know one of the most successful services businesses out there, just buried in this big Apple. But you know the services business we expect is going to be 30 to 40 billion dollars annually. Uh, it's already doing $30 billion. I think it will be $40 billion, um, next year just on their services revenue, you know, things that people buy through iTunes, et cetera. Yeah, Michael, just because you are American, I have to ask you about Trump. So the question about Trump to Apple is, how much cash does Apple have overseas and uh, the likelihood of Trump giving them a holiday to bring some of that cash back home? Yes, yeah, so with their cash overseas, 
is almost 95% of their 100 billion plus in cash is overseas. So um, lots of cash they could bring home. And so it just depends on, you know, there's expectations. We could get this repatriation of cash to help drive job growth. Um, you know, who knows? I don't want to get into politics on your call because sure. it has to do with getting things through the, the different bodies and, and the, you know, of the government. But if there could be something passed with tax reform and bringing, bringing the cash home, that would certainly bolster Apple's um, ability. Maybe they, to yeah, like, what, sorry, Jack, just, what, what do you think they would do with the cash? Would they give me a big fat dividend because I'm long the stock? So full disclosure, mm-hmm. Jack, Jack and I own Apple across what our growth and balance mandates, Jack? Um, sure. So, so would they give Jack and I a big fat dividend? Would they buy back stock? Would they invest in R and D or a combination thereof? Well, I think they they already invest quite a bit in R and D, so I don't think it would change their R and D. But it might be they might be more willing to do a large M and A. Um, I think they've already have a huge commitment in terms of dividend and the uh, buyback. Maybe they continue to step that up. But what they've been doing is just raising debt offshore so they can get cash onshore to continue to pay a, a hefty dividend and uh, cash returns. I mean, I think they've returned $250 billion in cash to investors over the last couple of years. It's a big number. I should say that $100 billion, just to put it in perspective, that's that's almost the size of Royal Bank, Canada's largest company. Yeah, in, in cash. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that's U.S. dollars, so it probably is the size of the Royal Bank. That's, that's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's some funny studies out there. I don't remember off the top of my head, but you can look it up. Like Apple has more cash than something like you know hundreds of countries around the world. So, so yeah, it's, it's amazing. Wow. I, I was going to say, I think the point of that is you're taking a billion dollars of unproductive assets, earning a couple percent in interest and actually making them active and productive. For but you know, you're so right. That's and part it, of the Trump trade. And it has to, yeah. you know, you got to see the wheels turn for it to come through. It could take some time, but I think that's why the market's still relatively excited uh, and up at these higher higher end of the valuations anyways. So Mike, just in the interest yeah. of time, let's switch gears here to another stock that you cover and Jack and I own, and that is Avago. So Avago manufactures chips. Um, yeah. Fill us in on quickly on the Avago story, Mark. The, the stock seemed to, uh, uh, sorry, Mike, the stock seemed to perform in, ter- in terms of earnings. It, it delivered, but the stock's down about f- uh, 4% in Friday's trading action. So uh, what, what's the story there with Avago and Broadcom? Sure, and just, just a close loop at Apple. It's two hundred and three billion of offshore cash. I just two hundred. Wow. wow! Oh, you just doubled it <laughs> from one hundred to two hundred. <laughs> I, I gave you the. It's net a rounding cash. error. <laughs> yeah. I gave you the. I gave you the net cash, but the gross cash is two hundred and three billion. Right. Wow. Yeah. So, um, oh, so switching over to Avago. What's the story with Avago, Mike? Yeah. So. Or Broadcom. Avago, excuse me. Yeah, Broadcom ticker Avago AVGO used to be old Avago, but they brought Broadcom and kind of the funny side story there is Qualcomm was bidding for it too, and one of the deciding uh, factors was Avago was willing to change their name to Broadcom in acquiring the company, whereas Qualcomm has too much into their brand. So that was, that's just kind of the backstory that's why funny. they're now called Broadcom, even though the ticker's AVGO. It's one of our favorite long-term uh, large-cap stocks. Basically, the stock's down a little bit because there was just such high expectations into the quarter. The stock kind of ran up into the quarter. And, and what's going on then, this kind of ties into Apple, is Broadcom's probably the biggest net um, content share gainer in, in the new iPhone. They go from five parts in the iPhone to eight, kind of mm-hmm. a 30% nice. increase in content. And what they've said is Apple's new OLED screen phones are launching a little later than normal. So while they didn't raise their guidance as much as people hoped for the October quarter, they did say their January quarter should be as big as the October quarter. Historically, their January quarter on the wireless business falls you know, 12%, 13%. They're saying it's flat just because Apple's launch is maybe a month later than normal launches in terms of the cadence. So it's just a timing effect, but the business there is strong. 
And really what they're doing now that this is a kind of the GE of semis, they now have 19 divisions in them now that they bought Broadcom and about to close brocade. So it's a stock that now they're focused on harvesting all these investments, improving margins, increasing the dividend. And this is a stock we think they're going to increase the dividend by more than 50% in October and probably another 50% a year from now, just given their view of just, you know, driving more free cash flow and kind of the hints they're giving. So big step up in dividend, cash coming back to investors, you know, good long-term growth, you know, strong margins. And we think it's going to continue to have a re-rating on the multiple kind of like PI. That's a diversified semi-company that returns a lot of cash to shareholders through dividends. And that's that's where we see Avago going over the next two years. Yeah. Uh, interest of time here, Mike. Um, well, what PE ratio does Avago currently trade at forward PE? Forward PE, it's about 13 times. 13 times, yeah. And, then, and the market is trading at a forward PE of around 18 or 19 times. So obviously the cyclicality and the risk around the sector gives it a bit of a multiple discount. But I think that's pretty uh, pretty, pretty steep of a discount. Do you not? Or is it, it justified? Is. No, it, 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 it is too steep in our opinion. That's why we like the stock. We think we'll see a re-rating of the multiple. It tends to happen sometimes to the Apple suppliers because you, you ebb and flow with Apple product cycles. But what people forget on... Broadcom is only 25% of their business is wireless, of which Apple's maybe 15% of their business. So it's not like they're like a Skyworks that I cover who's got 40 to 50% of their annual revenue tied to Apple. It's a much more diversified company. And with this cash return, that's why we think we'll get a re-rating on the multiple with you know, very steady, good earnings growth. Remarkable. All right, Mike. Well, you can go back to bed. I do thank you, as always, for your valuable time. And uh, I'm sure we'll speak to you in September. Coming up next, Hi-Fi Radio, Doug Grieve, Lysander Preferred Share Funds. If you're retired, preferred shares matter because they generate income for you. So stay tuned right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM640. Ah, yes, you're expecting Doug Grieve. He's coming up. We have to take a quick flight to New York to hang with my buddy, Tony Dwyer, Chief Strategist, Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Tony, are you there? I'm here. In New York? <laughs> New York. New you, York. Are you in New York? I'm in New York. You in, you know, I know you want to fly to the Adirondacks. You want to have your little weekend time. We get that. So I do thank you for... Uh, Joining us this morning on Hi-Fi Radio, AM640, Tony. So you are a strategist. Uh, you help Jack and I out an awful lot. Uh, you hold our hand. You tell us when to sit in some cash, when to overweight equities. Uh, you know, August has been a pretty tough month, especially up here in Canada, because we had the Canadian dollar rally. So our U.S. stocks uh, have, have receded with the Canadian dollar strength. And the TSX is underwater for the year, Tony, about 1.5%. And September, my good friend, sort of scares me. So, uh, Tony, should we be frightened or should we be greedy when others are fearful? Well, I think people are getting wolfy. Thanks for having me on. I, get, I think people are getting fearful again pretty quick. When you look at the average stock, it's already down a lot more than the indices. So I think the pain that people are, are worried about coming in September uh, is already taking place in August. And, and interestingly, those are the two months that are generally the negative months of the year. Indeed, August in the last seven years, five of those years, it's been a negative month. 
and it looks to be that way this month as well. So um, I think, you know, it does look like it'd be better to be buying weakness rather than trying to take, uh, t- trying to play it and get too negative. Hey, Tony, it's Jack here. How much, uh, you say buying weakness, how much uh, weakness are you expecting then? And wh- when would you start deploying your, uh, your capital? Well, I think you could get it on any further weakness. You've already had that. You could have another couple, 2 3% in the S&P 500, which is kind of the index that I track. But again, you know, you guys are, are handling individuals' money. It depends on, on their risk tolerance and, you know, where their interest is. But most of the weakness from a broad spectrum should be behind us in the next couple of weeks, Jack. Okay. And what sectors would you be looking to, uh, to, to deploy that money into? I really think that the story of the, the markets going forward is going to be the pro-growth versus slow-growth idea. By slow-growth, over the last seven years, we've had just about 2 to 2.5% GDP growth in the U.S. And what that means is people just wanted to buy where they know there's going to be growth, so tech, or bond surrogates where they know they're going to get yield because interest rates are so low. So uh, they've kind of shunned some of the commodity-based play that the Canadian – that uh, the investors in Canada are so familiar with. I think that's a better place to go, um, where you want to buy the financials, you want to buy the commodity-based companies, because the global economy is is re-accelerating. In fact, yesterday's Wall Street Journal carried a great chart, and the chart showed that uh, the OECD countries, out of all the OECD countries, which is the developed uh, countries, you ha- you've had 70, over 70 percent have accelerating growth, and none are in recession. So I think the big uh, story here, Jack, is that you're going to get reaccelerated growth, which should make the cyclical sectors do better. Just referencing that OECD report that you're talking about, the last time it was that high was, I think, 2007. Um, wasn't exactly, I guess, a good time to, uh, to deploy capital into the market. What's, what's different this time? Well, it was a very different credit market backdrop. That's only because that's as far as the data goes back in the chart. I, I would bet it's, there's many occurrences of that during the middle of, of prior cycles. But again, the credit markets are very different. Back, if you think of 2007, you were already develop, in development of the mortgage crisis in the U.S., and you were having negative uh, interest rate. The, the uh, yield curve had already inverted, which shuts down lending. You couldn't be further from that right now. You still have a very steep yield curve historically, and you've got the credit markets wide open. To give you an example, Jack, you've got um, this. You've already had the greatest amount of corporate credit new issuance in history from between January and August this year. Never, never been this high. It's pretty hard to make a, a case that companies are running out of money when all they have to do is go to the corporate debt market, and that's what they're doing. Tony, are you not worried just about the global debt? Because I think that's a, a really uh, concerning theme for, for, for citizens internationally, that global debt levels are getting to the point where they're no longer manageable. It, they're not. They're manageable, Wolfie, until you get interest rates going against you, and that's the whole point. Yeah. You know, the... the for example, let's say a household, mine, is highly levered. It doesn't matter. I have seven-year debt. It doesn't change for seven years. It doesn't matter to me the amount of debt I have for the next seven years because I know the interest rate on that debt is fixed. So my interest payment without taking on new debt isn't going to change. Now, seven years from now, if you have a significant spike in rates, I'm in, you know, I'm in trouble. But that's a long time to wait, and that's really what Janet Yellen and company have done is they've pushed out the maturities 
of corporate debt and household debt to the point where the lower interest rate environment has enabled them to take on a lot of debt, and it's not a big enough negative because that debt to income hasn't changed. See, Jack and I think alike. As as, as you're Uh-oh. speaking, as as you're speaking, I'm saying, gee, as long as you don't lose your job, Jack just slides me some cheat notes, which I need all the time. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just yeah. he said, Wolf, just yeah, as long we'll as you don't lose your job. So, Tony, hang around. I want to talk about your personal debt level. I'm kidding. <laughs> right after this, we got to pay some bills to make sure we don't go into debt on this end in the broadcast world of Hi-Fi Radio and AM640. Stay tuned, folks. More to talk. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio AM640. Good morning, Toronto. Welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio AM640. Tony Dwyer. Our chief strategist is on the line. He's got to catch a plane. In fact, he's got to fly a plane. But uh, he's going to hang with us for another five, six minutes just to talk to us about the month of September. Everyone thinks October is the most frightening, volatile month in the market. Not so. It is the month of September. In the month of October, things to turn around. All that happened is you had great crashes, two of them in the month of October. So it's been branded as a tough month. But statistically, October is okay. It is August. It's September that we have to get ourselves through. Uh, so, Tony, you remain bullish on the stock market. Jack and I, of course, remain bullish on the stock market, not because we have to, but because companies make money. They earn an earnings yield greater than 10-year interest rates. 10-year interest rates are about 2%. If Jack and I can buy stock at a 15 multiple, we have an earnings yield of about 7%, which gives us about a 5% earnings yield pickup over treasuries. That's not complicated stuff, is it, Tony? No, it's not. And I think the most important point that you can give the listeners is that the markets, the equity markets correlate most directly with the direction of earnings. So to be sustainably negative, I, I know there's a lot of doom and gloomers out there, and they'll eventually be right. You cannot fix debt with debt, and there's too much debt. Mm-hmm. But at this point, you have to make a case to be negative on stocks, thinking you've made, quote, unquote, the peak for the cycle. You have to make the case that the U.S. economy is going to go into recession, and that would be a historically unique event since 1954 without an inversion of the yield curve. And again, for the listeners, that means that short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates, and you couldn't be further from that right now. Now, Tony, I want to I want to um, dovetail around your core thesis because part of your core thesis is millennial, household formations, generation Y, millennials. Let's talk about that. You know what I'm talking about, just the statistics yep. and just the amount of kids turning 30 is ramping up. Uh, so to talk to us about yourself when you were a 20-something uh, <laughs> leading into 30 and, and how you changed. and years what, ago. Yeah, and, yeah, not quite, but sure. Hey, please. Okay, so what's interesting is throughout this cycle, people have been talking about the millennials like they're going to be different than any other generation. And I, I've debated that pretty aggressively over the last seven years. They just hadn't aged into a point where you could see a meaningful change in behavior. For example, you know, when I look back when I was in my mid-20s, I was, a, I was the stereotypical millennial. I was, you know, living in a one-bedroom apartment with two other guys. My, my bed was the couch. I was behind on my credit card debt. I was behind on my student debt. You know, I was what everybody kind of envisions, and all I wanted was experiences. I was living in New York City. I had no. If you asked me if I wanted to buy a car or a house or anything else, I'd tell you you're crazy. Then I met my wife, and 
that totally changed. And I ended up having a couple of boys. We moved out to the burbs, bought the house, bought the cars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There was a great story on Bloomberg, Wolfie, a, a couple of days ago about how the millennials are acting like every other generation. The the um, pig in the python, as it's called, the peak birth year for the millennials was 1990. So it's typical that somebody starts a household around somewhere between 27 and and 37. You're just coming to the point where you're ramping the number of people turning 27 to 30. And as that happens, you're going to have increased demand for normal things like houses and cars and things that come when you build a life, not just build an experience because you're right out of college. So I think the idea that, you know, somehow the millennials are different violates every part of human nature. Maybe they'll wait longer to get married. Maybe they'll buy different kinds of genes, but ultimately the behavior should be the same. Fast. So basically you did everything that the uh, the previous generations did, to, or, or millennials are doing, uh, Tony, with the exception of you weren't mining Bitcoins and you didn't have an, uh, you didn't have an iPhone. Everything else was the same. I still have no idea how to use either one of them. <laughs> Um, Tony, just in closing, uh, give us just a little bit more uh, realism. Uh, What's in store for the month of September and October? And and, and give us the Trump pulse, if you can, in about 35, 40 seconds. Sure. I think that there is such pessimism that Donald Trump can get anything done in Washington, that any tax legislation will be viewed very positively and significantly increase earnings per share for next year. Um, With that said, He's making it a hell of a time to get um, the debt ceiling resolved and some of the other issues in the budget deficit in the U.S. resolved. The angst about that may create a little bit more weakness, guys, but uh, we would be a buyer of that weakness. Perfect. All right, Tony, off you go in your airplane. I always thank you very, very kindly. You're a genius and a brilliant man to have on board. Coming up next, we're going to talk preferred shares. Exciting stuff. Not really, but you know something? It pays the bills if you're tired. Doug Grieve, Lysander Funds, right after this. Stay with us. There's more show still to come. That's what I want. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. That's what I want. Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Well, good morning. Welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. Yes, life's been good. I hope it's been good to you. It's been good to me. It certainly has. It's been good to Joe Walsh, I think. Well, if you're retired, life should continue to be good. And for it to be good, you need more money. And that's where Doug Grieve comes in. Doug Grieve is a manager of Preferred Shares. Uh, the stock market is all about common shares, but there's also a derivative or a hybrid product called a preferred share. And it's uh, it's an instrument used by retirees primarily as a very retail-oriented product used for income. We're in a low interest rate environment. How do you generate yield? How do you generate income? Well, Doug Grieve is here to talk to us about just that. Doug, good morning and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So, Doug, let's get back to basics here. You manage a preferred share fund at Lysander. Please share with the audience, uh, back to basics, what is a preferred share? Yeah, I mean, just to keep it really simple, uh, preferred share is, it's a hybrid uh, product. It's it's uh, it's equity-like and it's fixed income-like. Uh, uh, on the fixed income side, it, it offers an, an income, a regular income paid uh, 
on a regular basis. Uh, some of them pay monthly, some of them pay quarterly. On the equity side, it, it is technically equity. Uh, trades uh, you know, on an exchange and you can buy and sell it in the market just like uh, common stock. And as such, because it's equity, uh, it doesn't put as much stress on the corporate balance sheet. That's correct, exactly. Which is one of the reasons why corps issue it. But again, it's not tax deductible to the company. And that's why I've always been confused. Why issue this type of paper when they could issue normal debt and have it tax deductible? Well, there's a couple of reasons, uh, you know, and you got to break it down a little bit. Uh, the banks issue it because, um, like you said, it is an equity raising from the issuer's standpoint. So they're trying to raise money. They want to raise equity. They don't necessarily want to raise debt. Mm -hmm. And and the reason is, if you raise more and more debt, then your class, you know, your balance sheet looks worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. um, so you you want to raise the capital, but you don't want to issue more common stock. So you can issue a preferred share, which is equity, and it's not common stock because if you have common stock issuance, it can be dilutive to the shareholder. So so Doug Jack here. Why do they call it a preferred share? Uh, just for the listeners out there, um, if there's no voting attached with it, you don't have those uh, the rights that you typically have with common shares. Yeah, it's it's an issue of protection. Okay. Uh, common stock, you know, many of the Canadian uh, common stocks that also issue preferred shares, uh, you know, both have a dividend. You're protected on the preferred share. So if the dividend stops on the common, uh, you still have it going, or at least it, it ranks ahead with the preferred share. But it's not like a debt security where that's guaranteed. They can stop that dividend. It's just higher up in the capital structure. Is that Th correct? That's exactly right. So basically, they'd have to stop paying the common before they could stop paying the preferred share. That's correct? right. Correct? Yeah. Okay. That's in this, right. I would say this type of environment that we're in right now, everyone's saying that rates can't go any lower. They're expected to go higher. Uh, there's a number of different kinds of preferred shares, right? From perpetuals to... Um, Retractables. Yeah. Callables uh, to rate resets. What kind of preferred shares would you buy in a, in a rising rate environment? Yeah, that, that's a great question. This is one of the unique features of the Canadian preferred share market. Um, you know, about 15 years ago, they introduced what's called a fixed reset preferred share. And just to keep it really simple, they, they issue a fixed coupon for five years. And then after the five years, they, they will reset the coupon. And that coupon is based on where the uh, Government of Canada bond yield is at that time, plus a built-in spread of, of anywhere between 1, 2, 3, 4%. So every five years, they reset and you get a new coupon. So fixed resets, that's one of the key structures we use. Right now, our funds are made up over 75% fixed resets. So those resets were the ones back in 2015, Bank of Canada drop rates, correct? That's right. And then a lot of these got reset um, at a lower rate than expected, right? That's and a right. lot of retailers got, or retail investors got stung with that. Uh, what was your experience during that time? Because we actually, Wolfgang and I picked up a couple, I guess, on, on the cheap at the time. Uh, they turned out to be good investments, but uh, I think a lot of retail investors got hurt because they didn't know actually what they were buying at the time. And then when the reset happened, um, they lost principal and also got a lower coupon as well. That's right. So, uh, you, you know, and, you know, all markets, uh, you know, not every asset class is in favor all the time, as we know. Right. And so fixed reset preferred shares back in 2015, uh, you know, principal value did trade off. And, and just to, you know, elaborate really briefly, the, the main reason of that was, uh, you know, really twofold. The spreads built in in these resets were a little small. They were, you know, one to two percent built in spread. 
and and that was was not enough. It should have been three or four. Right. And then the other key thing, obviously, is the drop in interest rates, which is the other feature for the reset. So you're you're resetting. You had a five percent five years later. That five percent reset at two and a half. Wow. And that's what what, are, what are the reset rates now? What are the spreads? The spreads are uh, you like know new the, issues coming to market. I mean. Yeah, so they're coming around 300 basis points. Over governments. Over governments. Over governments, yeah. yeah. Hey, hang around, Doug. I want to ask you a little bit more about how much yield we can squeeze out of a guy like you right after this. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Well, hope you're feeling well this morning. Good morning to you. Thank you for joining Jack Hartle and Wolfgang Klein. Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. If you want a little more octane in your portfolio, a little more income to service your day-to-day consumption needs, Doug Grieve is here from Lysander. He manages a preferred share fund Doug, thank you for joining Jack and I. Um, so you, you manage a portfolio of how many different issuers? Uh, the, the issuers, uh, there's about uh, 30 issuers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of actual preferred shares, there's about 350 to 400 preferred shares in the Canadian market. In the Canadian market. In yeah. it, but in your portfolio, you have how many names? And then we own about 80. You own 80 names. So what, what is the average yield currently that your portfolio is generating? Right now, dividend yield. Yeah, right yeah. now uh, our fund pays monthly, and it offers over four, just over four percent yield paid monthly, and that and that's dividend income. So. And that's dividend. So that in fact, so for for a, for a high tax payer, uh, would in fact have an interest equivalency of roughly six percent. That's right. So which which is very very in, good in a non registered account. In a non registered right. account. So yeah. in a in a two percent world. You can see some attraction to the product because uh, it's interesting because Doug and I, or Doug Jack and I, uh, became familiar with your product. We ended up buying your product for our clients um, just after the, the market was overissued with preferred shares and 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 rates went lower, not higher, as Jack alluded to. And preferred shares went from twenty five bucks down to fifteen bucks. Uh, the retail street was actually a disaster. Was that two thousand fifteen, Jack? Yep, yep. It was in fifteen. It was first, a first disaster. quarter of twenty fifteen. And and Jack and I really have never gone to the preferred share market. I never. I've never liked the preferred shares. I like common or I like bonds or I like cash. Uh, I've never been a pref guy. Um, but at the, some, at, I would say we saw some value there. They were cheap. And at the time, uh, you know, we expected rates to rise higher. We actually uh, made a couple of good calls. And, uh, you know, we're not experts in the preferred share space like Doug. But uh, we certainly were able to recognize value when it was available, right? Well, that's just it, because because your 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 sector uh, has a lot of nuances in it, as, as Jack alluded to. There's retractable, there is callable, there is extendable, there is perpetual preferred shares, um, and a lot of moving parts. Plus, the market seems to always or, or, or issuers, companies come to market uh, at the wrong time for the holders of existing product. So a new issue comes out and the existing product then gets knocked down and is repriced as the new issue come to market. So I go back to, it is not an area 
for the um, uh, less, less than experienced investor. Hence, we use your product as a line in our fixed income holdings. So we, we have some fixed income funds that Jack and I own. We're always looking for bonds that, that are giving us a 5-6 yield. Very difficult to find in this day and age. But I will say that you've done a pretty decent job for us for the last year and a half that we've held you in our conservative mandate. Um, on a go-forward basis, uh, what's in store for us? Yeah, holding your product. Yeah, it, it, you know that's the the big question. You know, 2015 we had the sharp sell off. Uh, we were all surprised. Interest rates came down. Everyone at the time was sort of thinking rates were going to go up. We, today we've had a, a nice recovery. Uh, markets up, uh, you know, over 20 percent since the lows in 2015. Mm -hmm. But we, you know, we've positioned the funds to still own these discounted fixed resets, and these are uh, these are preferred shares that are positioned to continue to do well if rates continue to climb. Now, they were really, really quite low. And, and our general view is they are going to start, start to, or going to continue climbing. So when you look at the proposition of, of the fund, it's offering a 4% yield, or just over 4% yield, but we still see opportunity of recovery you know, as rates go higher. As you say, that's a 4% yield in investment grade issuers. Uh, you're looking down in the States right now, you're buying junk bonds, you're buying junk paper from uncredit worthy companies, and you're getting like four and a half. What, what so type of issues? So, yeah, so what type of issues in your product? I guess you got some Enbridge in there, you got some, some bank prefs in there. Yeah, we, I mean, uh, the Canadian preferred share market is made up of Canada's most transparent. Uh, companies, public companies, TSC sixty type exactly. Issuers. So we we own the banks, we we own the, the major pipelines, in, in you know including Enbridge and um, so you know you know Bell Canada is a name, uh, Fortis, um, you know these are all names that that your your client base would be familiar with. Mm -hmm. So what's your process for finding value in these names? How do you pick from one reset to the other? You're looking just at the reset rate, or you're looking at the credit quality of the issuer. What's what's the key determining factor for you? Yeah, we we, we have a, a you know a combination approach. Certainly, certainly look at the credit. Um, you know, some of the the key nuances that would be less familiar with with your with with your audience would certainly be you know what the offering coupon is. And the built-in spread, which would be anywhere two, three, four hundred basis points, or three or four percent, at reset, and and with reflection to the rest of the market, we look for value within that. Uh, you know, to keep it simple, if something offers a you know four seventy-five, but we anticipate resetting in a couple of years with a coupon higher than that, maybe five percent, that would be that would help you. Help you so out. it's it's a relative value trade that you're looking for within the the universe. Absolutely. That's okay. exactly how we look. Well, at it. fixed income and uh, yield investing in a low yield environment is very, very tough, Doug. And obviously, you, you're, you're having some success with it. And we appreciate uh, you joining us here on Hi-Fi Radio this morning. Folks, it's going to be a nice weekend. I want you to get out there. I want you to play. And don't forget, spend less than you make, and you'll become, well, wealthier. Thank you very kindly. Jack Hartle, pleasure to have you in the studio as always. And until next week, may you live and prosper. You've been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, Portfolio Managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. For the podcast of today's show, go to 640Toronto.com. New shows every week. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.